Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, hosting today with WFIU's News Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. We're talking with our guests about the U.S. Uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Taliban's quick takeover, and we will be talking with them about those issues and also about the two suicide bombers that killed, I think the death toll has risen to over 170 people yesterday outside of the airport gates. The two guests that we're talking to today are Todd Burkhart, who's a retired infantry lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He worked with the Afghan National Army. And also Nasif Sharani, an Afghan scholar and anthropology professor at IU. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send your questions there. And you can also send us um, your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us. I mean, the news coming out of Afghanistan has been pretty grim uh, for a while now, but certainly over the last couple of weeks. I wanted to start with uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Todd Burkhart first. Thank you for joining us today. And I just wanted to get your uh, sort of your overall take on on what's going on. I know you invest a lot of time and energy in Afghanistan. Probably have some emotions uh, emotions roiling through your your uh, body and your brain right now. What's what's it been like watching what's going on? Yeah. Hey, first, just want to say thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Um, I did spend some time in Afghanistan working with uh, Afghan National Army Special Operations. Uh, command, working with commandos and special forces all across Afghanistan. Um, I think it's been a roller coaster of emotions this last week, which really, after yesterday, became incredibly um, tragic. And I think the mood has significantly changed from, I think, the, the beginning, I think, last Sunday. Um, I do have friends in Afghanistan, both uh, Afghan officers and uh, interpreters, translators that I worked with that I've been desperately trying to get out of Afghanistan. And um, it's overwhelming uh, because of so many Afghans who worked with U.S. and coalition forces will not get out. Mm-hmm. I want to ask the same question to Professor Sharani. Um, as you watch this, what are your just just your overall views? Thank you very much, Mr. Salzberg, for inviting me to this forum. Obviously, um, the tragedy is immense for the people of Afghanistan. I obviously feel for American citizens, particularly soldiers who lost their lives yesterday. And I understand there are some uh, Hoosiers who are also serving at this time at the airport. But one thing that you have to remember that uh, the reports are only talking about the two bombs that happened at the airport. There were other bombs in western part of Kabul in the area named Kutaisangi, where uh, a magnetic bomb was apparently placed on Taliban um, pickup truck, which also exploded. And there have been other incidents as well. So what this is telling us is uh, the beginning of essentially another phase of warfare in Afghanistan. The people of Afghanistan are are, uh, on edge. They are suffering in in ways that we cannot really imagine. The fear is pervasive in the entire country. We're talking only about uh, the small segment who may be able to get out 
or are being helped by the United States and other countries to get out. But we're going to be leaving essentially close to 35, 40 million people in the country in a perdition that has been created by Taliban. And with our help, we started fighting them 20 years ago and then leaving the country to them 20 years later is nothing but a tragedy, if anybody wishes to uh, imagine that. All right. Thank you both for for those uh, opening comments. Um, Colonel Burkhart, so, you know, with the time that you spent there, how is this surprising to you, I guess, would be my my question. How did you think that this did you think this could be a successful operation and are you surprised that it's ending in such a way? Yeah, that, you know, that's a hard one. I mean, I was there um, uh, when I left in 2014. And so I think in a lot of ways we were incredibly optimistic. I worked with the elite of the elite of the Afghan forces. So the commandos and special forces um, uh, who really did the lion's share of the fighting. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't realize there's tens of thousands of Afghan soldiers that have died over the last 20 years fighting for the legitimacy of their government and, um, and the rule of law um, and, and freedoms and security. And so uh, had tremendous opportunity working with a, a group of soldiers that um, really cared, right, and, and cared about their family and, their, and the future of their families. I, I think... I think on a large scale, a lot of big issues that really undermined uh, the ability for the military um, to be really a standalone military. The, the, the supply and logistical systems are incredibly complex, uh, especially for the United States. And to try to implement maybe the same type of system in Afghanistan where infrastructure is crude and rudimentary, there's hardly any rail. Uh, even highway systems are um, really inadequate for a country of that size. And so I think just a matter of just regular supplies of food, ammunition, clothing, uh, uniforms, boots, pay even. Some of these soldiers, um, you know, lived incredibly austere and Spartan lives. Um, so I think, I think that undermined the ability for, for an army to be effective, one. Um, I also think that Probably the Trump, um, the Trump deal with the Taliban in, I think it was February of 2020, helped really undermine the legitimacy of the government of Afghanistan as well, where the Afghanistan government wasn't even invited to the table because the Taliban said no. And I think we all know, based on um, that the talks in Doha, 5,000 then Taliban soldiers were re- or Taliban fighters were released. And also one of the founding members of the Taliban uh, himself, uh, Berater, if I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, was also uh, released. It was it was a it was a moral victory. I think it was a, a victory a victory to the psyche of the uh, against the psyche of the Afghan people. Um, and I, and also you know I have to say there was definitely corruption and hoarding within the government itself. And I think you, you take all these pieces in addition to information operation campaign that I think the Taliban ex- executed um, quite well of, of, of telling people and showing people that there's an occupying force. You shouldn't, you shouldn't follow the United States. The, the government is not legitimate. It's just being propped up and that the Taliban is going to be there forever. And I think you take these series of things and it it can wear down the people and it definitely helped wear down the army. And I think those are significant contributing factors to the army sort of disintegrating over the last couple months. So, you know, now we're in this we're entering a phase here. We're going to we're not going to talk too much about politics today, but we're entering a phase now where there's a lot of finger pointing going on. Um, You just mentioned uh, President, former President Trump's deal with the Taliban and and how that could have gone wrong. Um, There are a lot of Republicans today just pointing at at President Biden and saying that that he didn't do the right thing and how he um, oversaw as as a commander in chief in chief this last phase. You know, when you hear a lot of discussion about about politics and about which politicians did right and which politicians did wrong, what does that um, you know? What does that do to you as a soldier who served in Afghanistan? 
Yeah, yeah thanks. I appreciate that question. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's not to put blame on anyone, uh, anyone administration, I think, and you know, the Biden administration, I think clearly messed up the withdrawal plan. There's no doubt. I, I not really understand why they would um, have the military leave and then still have 10, you know, nine to 10,000 U.S. citizens still in Afghanistan and then have to redeploy the military back in. So there definitely um, uh, seems to be that the, the planning process for the evacuation or the non-combatant evacuation operation at NEO was, um, was not really thought through. And this administration is now being reactive uh, versus uh, uh, being able to have the enemy being reactive. Um, I, you know, it's interesting over the last 20 years with four different administrations from from the Bush administration to the Obama to the Trump to the, to the Biden administration, it, it seemed to me through the years that no administration really knew what to do with this. Um, no empire has ever been successful in Afghanistan. I mean, the Greeks, the Brits, the Russians and the U.S. Um, you know, we, we've all failed. To, to, uh, and so incredibly hard place. Um, and Nazif can talk much more about, you know, um, tribalism uh, and, and just the way the country's com comprised. But I think in a lot of ways, there was never a multilateral political solution to the issues that were there. And it sort of fell upon the military to kind of figure out what makes sense and how to make it work and what, and develop a course of action. Um, and with each president, it seemed, well, hopefully the next administration can figure out what to do with Afghanistan. And, and, and that was a shame. Yeah. I wanted to follow up on that with professor, um, Sharani, you know, as a, just a, a citizen and someone who's followed the news, you know, I follow, I'm old enough to have followed the news when, the Soviets were in Afghanistan and and were there for about nine years and nothing good came uh, from that. And then, you know, the U.S. went in. We may have had good legitimate reasons for going in, but now we've been there for 20 years. Um, why is it so difficult to to accomplish something militarily in the country of Afghanistan? Uh, um, because the problem in Afghanistan and terrorist problem as a whole is not just a problem of security. It's fundamentally a political problem that the United States from George W. on essentially uh, wished not to consider. Instead, they turned it into a security problem and security problems here in the United States we're all familiar with is basically going to war, war on poverty, war on crime, and then war on terrorism. And we have fought, and then at the end, our political leaders have told us, oh, there is no political solution, I mean, uh, military solution to this. It must be resolved politically. What would have happened 20 years ago if this criminal act that was committed by al-Qaeda in uh, New York and Washington seen as a, as a criminal act and treated as one and, cr and crime, a war on crime hasn't worked and it shouldn't have been attempted again. We should have let the courts do it. But that did not happen. And we went to war. We have spent uh, a couple of trillion dollars by some accounts. And we have, um, we're counting our own debt which are now coming to about 2,413 uh, American soldiers or maybe a little more. Um, but we're not, we're forgetting how many hundreds of thousands of Afghans have been killed and their country destroyed. Um, and if we had, in fact, looked at this a political problem, we would not have um, partnered with thieves and kleptocrats in Afghanistan, people who were already known to have shady characters and people who were also uh, that we empowered representing the United States of Afghanistan were, in fact, um, partners in crime with Taliban. They were already business partners. Zal Khalilzad, who, who was uh, sent as a special envoy of George W., uh, had consulting a relationship with Taliban in their first round of rule in the 1990s. Uh, 
but he was sent there to negotiate to to become special envoy of the president and then ambassador of the United States of America. He is a tribesman in Afghanistan, and um, Colonel Burkhardt referred to that. Tribalism, particularly Pashtun tribalism in Afghanistan, is something that has been uh, part of the problem in the country because uh, members of this particular tribe who have been governing elites of Afghanistan have essentially claimed uh, special privileges to them. And they have discriminated against other communities in Afghanistan who are non-Pashtun, whether they're Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazaras, and others have suffered for the last 140 years because the, a bunch of tribal elites from the Pashtun community have been first supported by Britain, installed, in fact, as leader of that country with British weapons and British money, and then later on by the Soviets, after that with Pakistanis, in the last 20 years by us, the United States of America. We did not really wish to create a proper governance in Afghanistan. If we had, I assure you, the Taliban would be in power today. They did not, in fact, do much for the first four years of our intervention because they were destroyed very quickly with only about two, 300 American soldiers on the ground. The rest were done by the, by the local population. And then what we did, we basically, um, instead of helping create a better governance system, um, we kept sending troops, keep sending troops, and then took the war to Iraq. Uh, so that there is something seriously wrong with our foreign policy. And I should also mention, Washington Post published six-part series on how American government deceived the people of the United States in their war in the United States in 2019. Who took notice of that? No one. So our problem is really, this was fundamentally a political problem. It needed a political solution, and there was a, a reasonable solution suggested repeatedly by me and many others. Nobody took it seriously. We went on our war, and people made um, lots of money, particularly those who are part of the military-industrial complex, especially the ones who are making weapons, selling weapons, and serving the military. Um, a lot of this $2 trillion was spent right here in the United States, not in Afghanistan. Some of that reached the kleptocrats there who filled their pockets and um, kept deceiving both their own people in the United States of America. So we're really talking about a, a phenomenal deception, a political deception that has gone on. You know, when soldiers are sent, they do their job. And indeed, as Colonel Burkhardt said, the special forces of Afghanistan were very well-trained, well-equipped, and so forth. But why did they fail? Because of their political leadership didn't exist. People did not trust them. People uh, are fed up with them. And Taliban also took advantage of that, saying, look, what America has brought to us, a bunch of thieves running the country who are dishonest, who are uh, stoges, who are this, that, the other. And it's not difficult for people to understand that. But the problem is Taliban are also equally hated. So that there was, there was and there is a serious crisis of leadership, political leadership in Afghanistan. And unfortunately, we here in the United States have also suffered from the same uh, problem, crisis of leadership in the White House for the last 20 years at least, having to do with the war in Afghanistan and many other wars that they have uh, indulged in. Yeah, uh, President Biden you know, did issue an apology yesterday for saying, you know, he, he, he was following through on something that the two presidents prior to him had promised to do and hadn't done, but even he was surprised by how this is, this has turned out. I'm, I'm curious, Professor Shrani, just are you surprised with how quickly this really turned into chaos. Some of the cell phone footage and different things we're seeing is just, it's, it's horrible. Not, not really. If you look at the political mess that Afghanistan is, first of all, we had uh, funded in the tune of uh, nearly $4 billion a year, now apparently around $3.3 billion, um, creating this, security force of 350,000. 
Most of them were ghost soldiers, apparently. They did not exist in reality, but they were on paper. And our taxpayers' money was taken by the officers who run this army and pocketed. And as um, Colonel Burkhardt also suggested, in many cases, soldiers who were on the ground were not properly fed. Their salaries were not paid because their officers pocketed the money. And the political uh, class were also in league with them. And what also happened in the last few uh, weeks was there was a lot of pressure on Ashraf Ghani, the president who fled the country, to resign. He did not want to resign. So what he did, uh, and and um, his uh, opponent, as it were, uh, Zal Khalilzad, who was in Doha negotiating with the Taliban, he apparently reportedly ordered some of the contingents, military contingents in the provinces not to fight so uh, and let the ground to Taliban. So if Taliban takes more territory, maybe he will be able to force Ghani to resign, which may have in some ways happened. But by the time Ghani realized that he was not going to stay in power, he also encouraged immediately to really give a kick, a real kick in the tooth to Khalilzad as well as to to, uh, U.S. and NATO forces. He also encouraged uh, military officers, particularly Pashtun military officers throughout the country and particularly in the north, to not fight, leave their uh, weapons and let the Taliban come and take over. And the the consequence of that was this utterly unexpected um, fall of Kabul in the entire country so rapidly that Taliban didn't know also or did not expect and did not know what to do. In 10, 12 days now, they have not been able to form a government or do much of anything. And at the same time, it put the United States, NATO, and everyone else in a position that they have to scramble and that they have also made more misjudgments in in managing the crisis that was created essentially by Ghani. And uh, Ghani is going to, has been allegedly uh, come out of the country with $169 million. And this is a criminal act by any account. It would be good if somebody, in fact, asked them or returned them to some kind of international court or Afghan court to be tried for what he has done and what Khalilzad has also done in terms of the foreign policy of this country. He has been responsible for the last 20 years and earlier for much of what this country has done. Has anybody asked them why this mess? And anyone who... who, who uh, falls short in any job to the extent that this man has done, he should be called to account. Is the United States Senate ready and willing to ask him to account for why our policies have failed so, so badly? Uh, for one, we he was responsible for legitimizing this very well terrorist group. Hi, everybody knew that they were terrorists, but he legitimized them and brought them into um, in agreement with the United States, a peace agreement with the United States, and legitimized them as a political force. And now they have been let loose once again on the people of Afghanistan. If you have a question or a comment for our guest today, and that, that one who was talking was IU Professor uh, Nazif Sharani. He's an Afghan scholar and anthropology professor at IU. Our other guest is retired infantry Lieutenant Colonel Todd Burkhart, uh, Todd's with the U.S. Army. If uh, you have questions for them, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and send us questions there at Noon Edition. Sarah? At the beginning of the program, you were talking about some of your friends and former colleagues who are still in Afghanistan and won't be able to get out. I was wondering if you could um, just talk a little bit about that and how, you know, obviously it's a very dangerous situation there, even though they have resumed these evacuations today. 
Yeah, um, yeah, it, it's absolutely heart wrenching. Uh, let me let me just say this because I didn't get a, a moment at the beginning just to say my heart and, uh, and prayers goes out to the Marines and um, Navy corpsmen that were killed yesterday, along with the Afghan civilians. Uh, from my understanding, a lot of the casualties were actually children, uh, and so my heart breaks for for the soul for the Marines. Uh, that we lost, and also for the Afghan civilians that were that were murdered yesterday in the uh, attacks by ISIS-K. Uh, but I have to say that our military is doing a phenomenal job over there of doing combat operations and humanitarian op- humanitarian operations at the same time. The amount of tens of thousands of people that have been evacuated from Kabul or Hkaya uh, Karzai International Airport it, it is absolutely amazing. Um, speaking, so I am working with a few of my counterparts that I got to know incredibly well when I was in Afghanistan. As I mentioned, a couple of them are Afghan uh, special operations officers, and a couple of them are interpreters. Um, and and I, it, it's 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 been hard and it's been difficult. And and uh, that you know WhatsApp is a, is a great source in order to communicate. Uh, and, and talk uh, in real time with my counterparts over there. I have to say, there, there's a. I think what happened last Sunday when Kabul fell, veterans um, and contractors and former agency people who had worked in Afghanistan, along with other great civilians who have worked with NGOs, non-governmental organizations over there, all started trying to figure out what we can do to get people out. Because it didn't seem like the United States had a plan for people that we promised. I promised people, right, that, you know, they, they worked for us. They, they, um, they put their own lives and their families' lives in jeopardy for years, for years, um, working with us. And so to make a promise to somebody and uh, that w- we have your back, and then it seems like, we're, we're leaving. And it was, I mean, honestly, to be frank, it was like deuces, we're out. Uh, and I, 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 it's hard for me to reconcile something like that uh, after, you know, being there and, 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 you know, just being in some amazing, um, harrowing times with Afghans and U.S. soldiers being killed. Um, and so there's some amazing groups that had come together in the last week And I just want to say to Team America, Digital Dunkirk, No One Left Behind, Arc Salis, Arc Lift, uh, Airlift 21, these are all groups that stood up that are are made or comprised of veterans, civilians, former agency folks, uh, and contractors that are working together with people who are in Kabul, in Afghanistan, to try to get people out, uh, SIV applicants and others um, because it didn't seem like our government really had a solid plan to do that. And so I have been working with these, all, all of these different organizations as a way to get some of the, my friends and contacts out. It's been incredibly difficult. And I think with the attacks yesterday, I'm still in the process of trying to help people get out of Kabul. And uh, from my understanding and contacts, a lot of things have shut down and significantly slowed down compared to, way, compared to the way it was prior to the attacks. Uh, I know now that there is more of an emphasis on blue, card, blue passport holders and green card holders. And I, I don't really know um, regarding people who are S, S, have SIVs, um, if they're going to, we're going to make it uh, by the deadline by the August 31st, which is just, which is sad. Could you explain what those, uh, what those three different things are? Yeah, I'm sorry. So, um, so of course, if there's U.S. citizens still in Kabul, uh, of course, we have our passports are blue. So we just call it, you know, blue passports, right? And so if you're a blue passport holder, U.S. citizen, front of the line, a way to get you to the airport. Hopefully you're in communication. You're not supposed to a gate, go to a gate, but uh, because it's, they can't protect your safety there. But there are operations going on now where um, special operators or others are trying to go into Kabul to locate some of those that have been in contact, right, through U.S. Embassy or other channels. Um, uh, a green card, right, that you um, have... You, you, you're, you're a resident of the United States, legitimately, just you're not a citizen yet. Uh, and so my understanding that both of those um, are the 
the only priority right now are both those holders. The SIV, Special Immigrant Visa um, holders, those are our Afghan counterparts that uh, worked with us over the last 20 years. A lot of them have applied. It's a long, lengthy process that I think was incredibly slowed down through the Trump administration. Uh, and I can tell stories about that some other time. Uh, some of the issues I, were, I had personally as I tried to help my friends uh, with their SIV applications, I think it's 14 steps. And it's so bureaucratic and full of red tape that me as somebody who speaks English and I've lived in this country my whole life, I find the process incredibly overwhelming. Um, and so anybody who has an SIV, special immigrant visa, or has already applied for one, my understanding now is that that is not the priority for exfiltration or to get into the airport. Um, my understanding is that it might be They'll continue to work the process, but it might be after the August 31st, and I don't know exactly what that what that means for those uh, friends and, and their families. So, uh, can you just explain what's at stake for these folks if they can't get out? Yeah, and 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 Professor Sharani can probably talk a lot more in depth than me, but I I will just say, um, uh, I so there is no doubt. I mean, people. It, here's an interesting story, right? Is when I served in Afghanistan after Afghan soldiers went through elite training to become an Afghan commando or Afghan special forces upon graduation of these incredibly hard demanding courses, um, they were given a week or two of R&R, rest and relaxation or leave. You know, they go back home uh, to their, to their t small village or town. They weren't allowed to leave the, the compound or the base with their uniform for fear of being murdered or reprisals against their families. And so I, I can't even imagine living in a country. I mean, I'm incredibly proud of my three decades of service in, as an active duty army uh, officer. Um, and I can't imagine living in a country that is so un insecure that you can't, or unsecure that you cannot wear your uniform back home. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching where um, women, right, will not go, not have the opportunity for any type of education except probably the interpretation of what the Taliban says is the Quran. Uh, same, with, same with girls. Um, and also just, just simple things of you have to return to Afghan national clothing dress. Uh, my uh, interpreter friends were wearing more, I guess, contemporary clothing, quick how to switch to blend in. Um, and if you're not dressed appropriately, or even if women are on the street, people get whipped, you get beat. Um, uh, and so I think it, it's, it's, it's a regime full of brutality, uh, Sharia law. Uh, and I, and you know, just last thing, I, we're talking about friends that are in Kabul trying to get out, but what about the, the people who endangered their lives for years working with U.S. and coalition forces that are in Harat or in Helmand or in Kandahar or in uh, Jalalabad or Mazar Sharif, which are hundreds of miles away from Kabul? They ain't ever getting out. Uh, and, and that's truly tragic. I think Professor uh, Shirani might want to weigh in on that as well. It would be, it would be good to hear your thoughts on, on what it's going to be like for the citizens who are left. Let me say this, uh, President um, Biden has given up on Afghanistan. That's what he decided to do. And he tested, I think, the uh, security forces of Afghanistan and the government of Afghanistan, and unfortunately, both of them failed the test. But the people of Afghanistan have not given up. They're going to fight, and they're going to fight Taliban for as long as it takes. And there is, in fact, a movement already underway in Panjshir by the son of the former hero of resistance against the Taliban, Ahmad Shah Massoud. His young son, who is about 30, 31 years old, is named Ahmad, also Ahmad Massoud. And that uh, a lot of uh, former special forces soldiers with some of their weapons have made their way to Panjshir. And a lot of other resistance fighters have also moved to Panjshir. And there are also uh, attempts inside the country, especially in the mountains in the north, to organize resistance against the Taliban. So Taliban will not be left to terrorize the country, although some of them are trying to come out, as uh, Colonel Burkhardt has mentioned. Uh, 
And how many of them can we bring out, really? I mean, we have affected millions of people, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of them directly working with us or indirectly being involved with what we did during the last 20 years. So to focus on bringing out people from Afghanistan and feel good that we have rescued some, but leave the rest under Taliban control is really a moral challenge that we as citizens of this great country have to face. And our foreign policy makers also have to face. It's going to be disastrous for the people of people who will be left behind under the control of Taliban. Taliban have said in the last few days that they're going to give amnesty to everybody. They're not going to take revenge. They're not going to um, uh, restrict women and so forth. All of these have been false. All of them. They have, in fact, been killing. They have been taking revenge on people. And they have been searching uh, people's homes and arresting them, uh, hanging them, shooting them. And women have not been allowed to go to their work. If they have appeared there, they have been essentially told, go home, we will pay your salary. Although that salary doesn't exist yet because there is no money for them to, to pay anybody. They cannot. One of the other remarkable things that has happened is the last five years of Ashraf Ghani's reign in Afghanistan was to digitize the government files, the bank files, everything. And apparently a lot of those people who knew how to operate with this new digital system are no longer in their work positions. So Taliban have not been able to open the banks. They have not been able to make uh, ministries, the government offices, to work. And uh, that's part of the challenge that, that they are faced with. It's not Afghanistan of 20 years ago. Not only that, we have a bulging population of young people 65 to 70% of today's population of somewhere estimated, again, because there never has been census allowed to be taken in Afghanistan, of 35 to 40 million or below the age of 25. And bulk of them are people who have been, in fact, benefiting from education in the last 20 years and other uh, freedoms. A lot of them have, have joined uh, NGOs, a lot of them have worked for media. They are very media savvy. Uh, the social media of Afghanistan today is amazing. And that they have been also demanding that they want a different kind of governance system, not the old centralized or extra centralized government where the president constitutionally had the right to appoint every governor, every commander, every civil servant, essentially, directly or indirectly. And that people did not have the right to elect any of their political officers or even recruit their own civil servants. So this is the challenge of Afghanistan. And people in Afghanistan are now demanding uh, not only inclusive government, but also a government that is decentralized and it's based on the principles of community self-governance. What we have been uh, practicing right here in Bloomington, in Indiana, in the rest of the United States, why are we exception, making exception that people in the Middle East or Muslims are, are not like us who could not govern themselves? People in Afghanistan can, thank you very much, govern themselves if they are allowed. They have not been allowed because the governments that have been empowered have been given weapon and given money by outsiders and imposed on their own people who have not allowed them to govern themselves. This is what the youth and what Ahmad, uh, Ahmad Masood and his group in Panjshir are demanding right now. And they are in negotiation with Taliban. Will Taliban accept those demands? I doubt it. And if they are not going to um, uh, essentially concede the wish of the people of Afghanistan I'm afraid we're into another decades of war, maybe without the United States, but I doubt that it would be without the United States either, because China and Russia are embracing Taliban, and they are, in fact, closing in to side with the Taliban, in which case we may have to, uh, in the name of the interest of the United States in the region and so forth, 
uh, have to go back and support those who are going to be um, uh, supporting the Taliban in their horrible uh, uh, criminal regime. So that uh, we may have to, in some ways, be back in there, but it would have been much better if we had indeed approached this problem of terrorism, not just in Afghanistan, but globally, is a political problem that needs to be addressed, and it cannot be addressed by war, and it, we're, we have been proven that, that there is no military solution to these problems. So when are we going to come to census and say, uh, it's a political problem and let's look for political solutions and that they can be found if we try. Yeah, yeah, uh, Professor Sharani, I just want to add one more thing, if I could, Bob, on that. Absolutely. Um, When Professor Sharani was talking about the Taliban, you know, um, just getting WhatsApp texts and voice texts from my my friends over there, um, you know, Taliban, you don't, of course, you don't see this on the media because the only place where the media is located is right around the airport, uh, of course. Um, but there are definitely cases uh, of Taliban uh, door-to-door and finding commandos uh, who did the lion's share of the fighting against the Taliban and uh, of killing them, uh, hanging them. Uh, and also a lot of Afghans trying to make their way to the gates. This is prior to the attack. This is last week I'm talking about. We're afraid to go through Taliban checkpoints because any documents in English were, were confiscated. Uh, and also na- their names were written down on some list. So I guess if you don't make it out of the country, the Taliban has a list of people who you know co- collaborated with the United States. So just the sheer fear of trying to make it through Taliban checkpoints for good reason uh, were a lot of reasons where some of the Afghans who had uh, SIV applicants never even made it to the gate. It's important also to mention uh, in what Colonel Burkhardt has said that the Taliban have, in fact, now um, found all the files, digitized files, and they may not be able to open them immediately, but they have asked for Pakistanis, and Pakistanis are in to help them essentially open these files. And those files have the information on all the people who have served in the Afghan army in the last 20 years, or at least the last 10 years of it. So that special forces, non-special forces, everybody has biotech um, information on those files and that they are in danger. And so are a lot of other people because we have documented them so well for Taliban to go after them. Todd, can you explain the significance of this August 31st deadline? Now that things have gotten so out of control, why are we still married to this August 31st? Yeah, I I wish I really knew. I mean, it's it's a self-imposed deadline uh, that the Biden administration, uh, you know, put the mark on the wall. Uh, the Taliban seemed to like it, and, and now that had become their red line even before uh, the, uh, the the attack yesterday by ISIS Khorasan. Uh, uh, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure, and I, I think if any I think the Biden administration is going to stick to that. I think, of course, it's incredibly. Um, the situation is fluid. Um, it's hard. Your opera, U.S. soldiers and Marines are operating feet or a few meters away from Taliban forces, let alone, you know, a potential other suicide bomber or whatever the case may be. Uh, and so there's very high possibility for more U.S. casualties. And so I do think that the Biden administration, we are going to retrograde uh, out on the 31st of August. Um, I, I don't know exactly what that will look like, but I think it could look um, uh, somewhat to, you know, the last helicopters leaving Saigon in 1975 with people storming uh, the, the, the airport. Um, my understanding that the State Department has said that in the Department of Defense is that they're going to continue to work to get Afghans out that, um, that have helped us after the August 31st deadline. But I don't really know what that's going to look like and to what extent, um, especially if we don't have a presence there. Um, so just definitely not sure. But my understanding is that the priority, the, the sole priority right now is on, as I mentioned, blue passports and green cards. Todd, could you address the issue of, um, and I've seen it in you know several places, people saying that you know after the war, 
World War II, you know, we, we left a base, we left a base in Germany. We've got troops that stayed in Cuba. We have a base in Cuba. We have bases in a lot of places. Why, why wouldn't we leave some sort of force in Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think we should have um, my own personal opinion. It's my understanding that both uh, Secretary of Defense Austin and uh, Joint Chairman or uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, Milley uh, both recommended that we leave a small military force that has um, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance uh, capabilities, as long as a small strike package that could help the uh, Afghan government. Um, however, uh, Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, Secretary of State Blinken and, and uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan uh, recommended that we do a full withdrawal, and President Biden agreed to that. Uh, but, but you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we, we've had troops in Japan since the end of the war. We've had people in Germany since the end of the Second World War. Uh, and we have, we have U.S. soldiers uh, and Marines and sailors and special operations forces in over 100 different countries currently. Um, and so a small presence, um, I think, would have made a lot of sense. Uh, the Biden administration says, hey, it has over-the-horizon capability to strike, and, and we do, right? We have uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, militaries in, in the world. I think the, I think the problem is without, without having a presence in Afghanistan, we lose significant human intelligence capability. Um, and uh, as Professor uh, Sharani said, the Taliban don't really have any semblance of how to run a government uh, and a country and so and or have security across all of uh, the, the Afghanistan, which is about the size of Texas. Um, so how can the Taliban prevent ISIS-K, right, developing and gaining capacity or other terrorist uh, organizations? Um, and it could potentially be a hotbed for other insurgent groups, other terrorist organizations, where we're not going to have the presence uh, or platforms located right there to deal with those as they emerge, or even really realize about it, um, because we're going to—we don't have the human intelligence anymore. Well, I guess I want to ask both of you about that because you know we saw President Biden yesterday saying, you know, we don't forgive and we don't—we don't forget. We will find you. And we will, you know, we will punish you, basically, the people that were responsible for the, the terrorist bombings yesterday. How do we, how do we do that? Mm -hmm. yeah. that that's a, that's a big question. Our politicians always make these promises, but how many of them are kept? Um, the issue of our presence, military presence, is well documented in a book by Robert Kaplan. It's called The Imperial Grants. And uh, it would be advisable if the audience looked it up. Uh, he documents that we are present militarily in more than 125 countries around the world. So why we should not be present in small numbers in Kabul is probably something that Zal Khalilzad cooked up with the Taliban. And um, again, politicians uh, stating particular dates uh, to get out without really consulting the military. In Afghanistan, in my judgment, the military personnel, particularly the officers, were far better in, in, informed about what was going on in the country, especially outside of Kabul. The diplomats in the embassy, while we had the, the largest embassy, were essentially cooped up beyond, uh, behind the walls and knew virtually nothing about the reality outside of their compounds. And that's why they have made some of the worst decisions uh, during this war. And if it was left to the military, we probably could have had some success, but that was not to be. Again, the, the uh, question of um, what we can do is, I think, more important under these circumstances, that we must support the people of Afghanistan, particularly the youth, particularly somebody like Ahmad Masood and his followers who are ready to fight against the Taliban and who are willing to defend the country. But we have to also work towards the possibility, if Taliban are going to be um, uh, running the country, that they would have to concede to uh, having 
uh, inclusive government as well as decentralized government in allowing the full measure of the rights of women according to the Quran. It's very important to remember, Taliban are not referring to Quran. They are calling Sharia. Sharia is something that is uh, made up by human beings politically for convenience of and for control. And much of what they refer to as Sharia, which was taught in Pakistani madrasas, are in fact not in the Quran. There is no support for them from the Quran. So we have to insist that the rights of women in Afghanistan and elsewhere in the Muslim world should be on the basis of Quran, not Sharia, the historically constructed um, uh, rules and regulations for the convenience of those who use Islam as a means of oppression in their own countries. Yeah, we have yeah. about two, two more minutes, so I wanted to get your thoughts on that too. Yeah, um, thank you. The, um, I would say we, we're probably going to see some strikes from, um, from you know, an MQ-9 Reaper, a drone, uh, at some ISIS-K targets. I would say mm, it might be three to six months from now. Uh, I think gaining the intelligence is incredibly hard. As I mentioned, we don't really have people, we don't have a system anymore on the ground. Um, some of that will probably come through signal intelligence, through chatter, uh, through phone, through text, through WhatsApp, right? Uh, and then trying to track that down. It's also incredibly hard, um, this type of enemy, right? It's not like fighting, uh, a, a state or, you know, another political sovereignty. Uh, where, you know, there's a geographical location where that country is. Uh, this is a group that, you know, blends in, blends out, looks just like a civilian, and then, you know, pretends they are, and then they murder people. So it's incredibly hard to exactly know where they, where they operate out of. Uh, but I would think that just based on intelligence and some, uh, it will take some time, but I believe, you know, the Biden administration wants retribution for what happened yesterday. So, uh, there will be some strikes, and hopefully they, they hit their target. In the last minute we have, Todd, could you also talk about the dangers that the troops who are still there are facing? Because they certainly don't want someone like a suicide bomber to get on one of those planes. It has to be so stressful. Um, and I have to say, I, I don't know what that's like to do a combat operation, but at the same time do a humanitarian operation. I've done one or the other, but never both combined. Uh, and so you are right next to people that you can smell them and feel their breath on your face as you're trying to pull them to safety and, and to freedom. Um, and I think it, it has to be incredibly hard for our young men, young men and women who, in some ways, this is going to stay with them the rest of their lives because they are helping select who makes it to freedom and who, in a sense, they literally have to close the door on. Uh, I, I, that has to be incredibly hard. And not only that, but then you have to be incredibly situationally aware the whole time where potential enemy looks like any other civilian. Right. Dressed in, uh, you know, Afghan uh, clothing and underneath that clothing could be a could be a bomb. So incredibly stressful, incredibly hard times. But our military has done a phenomenal job. Thank you very much to Todd Burkhart, retired infantry lieutenant colonel of the United States Army, and also Nassif, Nassif Shari, Sharani, sorry, uh, Afghan scholar and anthropology professor at IU. I want to thank my co-hosts, Sarah Whitmire, our producers, Holden Abshir and Benta Boutier, and engineer John Bailey. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com.